Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Good morning, church. It's always a blessing and a privilege to be here and to uh, preach in what I call Big Church um, with you this morning. Uh, If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been walking through this series called Meeting Jesus at the Crossroads of Life. We've been looking at different stories where Jesus interacts with an individual and then looking at how um, that relates to us today and what truths we can glean from it uh, today. And so we're going to be continuing on in that series, and we've been reminding everybody how Jesus meets people right where they are. Like, you don't need to catch up to him, uh, but he meets you right where you are, and how Jesus can do more for you in a singular moment than anybody can manufacture in a lifetime. That is Jesus who brings about change and nothing else. So that said, I want to ask, have you ever had like a really hard day or perhaps suffered a large hurt, um, trauma, you're walking through some form of suffering, and then a super upbeat, likes mornings type of a person approaches you, and they just have that Bible verse ready to go, and like, you're, you're hurting, you're struggling, it's been a bad day, and they come up with, it's the same verse normally, Romans 8, 28, for all, all things work together for the good of those who love them, and, and it's almost like when they say that to you, like, they expect you to just be like, oh, Thank you. Suffering gone. Joy received, and you just walk forward in gladness. Thank you, dear brother and sister. I was crying, but you, you, man, you fixed me up real good. Now, if you're honest, or if you're like me, what you really want to do is smack them upside the head. Be like, that is not the time to kind of like, just, just cry with me for a minute. I don't need a verse. I just need a friend. But here's the thing. It is biblical truth. It's just not the one we want to hear in that in that moment, like we know God works all things together for the good of those who loves him, but sometimes it's, it's hard to feel that way, right? We know hard times are coming. Like biblically, we are assured that even by Jesus himself, like there will be trial, there will be tribulation. But the question is, what should we do when that trial comes into our life? How do we, how do we process them? How do we respond I think today that's what John 9 is going to be all about. I want to try to show you when we faithfully follow Christ, we can see his glory even in the most difficult of circumstances. Today I want to show you why difficult things even happen in our lives. But more importantly, I want to show the ultimate purpose for them. Not just just that they happen, but there's always reason So let's look together, John chapter 9, we're going to read just verses uh, 1 through 5. It says, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about, his blindness, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do works of him who sent me while this day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the disciples asked the age-old question that I think everybody has to ask at some point in their lives. They ask, essentially, Jesus, why do bad things happen? 
We're looking at this man. He is, he is blind. So Jesus, why, why this guy? Why this particular person? Like, why did this bad thing happen in his life? So what the disciples are doing is they're, they're banking on their knowledge of what they knew, which was just, okay, we know how sin works in some degree. So it's either he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong. We have an understanding of sin as well. So let's, let's walk through, just like the disciples need to walk through, like there are things that happen, like why do bad things happen? I walk students through it uh, in this way. Well, first of all, your sin. Why do bad things happen? The disciples named it off, like is it that this guy sinned? So we have to recognize that sometimes the sin in our life produces a consequence, now, I am a pastor, and as a pastor who's been pastoring students and parents for 20 years, uh, I tend to have the same conversations, which is like, if there's a sin, then there's going to be a consequence. So sin brings about consequence. Every time, all the time, if there's a sin, there is a consequence. Even just this morning, as a student, like, oh man, I'm so tired. I stayed up late till two o'clock in the morning. I just don't know why I'm so tired stayed up till 2 a.m. Did I need to connect the dots? Like there's a sin, there's a consequence. There's an action, there's a consequence to the action, right? If you smoke or vape over the years, you should not be shocked if there is disease in your lungs. There's action, there is consequence. If you're lying to your parents or you find yourself gossiping, it should not come as a shock to you that people might not find you trustworthy, right? If you're going to lie... And the consequence is there's broken trust. Conversations I have over and over and over. When I talk to students and college students and, and parents about premarital sex or, or any sex outside of marriage, and pregnancy has come into play every time, I, I have the same conversation. Like, well, I just didn't, I just didn't know I can get pregnant. Did you, did you miss a day in biology class? Did you know you were having sex? Yes. Okay, well, then one of the outcomes of sex is that you could get pregnant. Are you aware of that? Well, there's an action. There is a natural consequence. And we see this, like Hebrews 12, 6. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. That is because God is a loving father, there is going to be discipline and correction in our lives. Because there is sin, there will always be correction and consequence, right? Those are the two forms of di like discipline, right? We have negative and positive reinforcement strategies. We actually see this here in Hebrews 12, to reinforce, to keep the child on the right path. Not, not too long ago, um, we got pigs. Not here at Crossgate, but like at my house, we have, we have pigs. Don't walk outside and be concerned. So we got pigs, which is a sentence I don't think I ever thought I would say until moving into Arkansas. And, and to keep the pigs, what we do is we put up this electric fence. So it's very low, and the pig snouts up to it, zaps them, and the pig's like, I can't touch that thing. And they walk away. Well, we installed it not too long after. We had a youth just come over to my house, and they were hanging out, and they're like, what's that? I was like, that's an electric fence. Well, what happens if I touch it? I'm going to get electrocuted because it's an electric fence. Ow! It hurt me. Well, yeah, because it's an electric fence, which I just said, if you, ow, you touched it again. The reality is, is that this is what we do over and over and over and over and over again with sin. We, we know it hurts us. 
We know it's going to cause a reaction. We just think that, well, maybe this time it's different. Maybe this time I'll change. And, and side note, I think the pigs understood this far faster than the teenagers did in regards to the electric fence. But, but like we understand this. There is a negative and a positive uh, form of discipline. Negative discipline is consequential. Like, if you do this, then this will happen, right? We, we understand this. There's positive reinforcement. Think of, like, athletics. This is the positive reinforcement to train you to be uh, better, faster, stronger, all of those things. Like, it, it's, it's corrective. It's not necessarily negative, but it's corrective. And God, because he is a loving father, uses both in our lives. So especially if there's sin, there's going to be consequence. Like it's going to hurt to some degree. It's going to cause conflict. It's going to cause a reaction every time. So one, it's because you sin. We understand that. The second one is what the disciples even understood is somebody else sinned. Notice in the verse, he's like, who is it that sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? This is, they based this off of uh, a verse in Exodus. And so they're trying to figure out, like, who's the one who sinned? So they recognize other people can sin and it affects us. And we understand this as well because we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where you have Cain kills, he actually murders his brother Abel. And Abel did nothing wrong. But Cain, because of his anger and because of his jealousy, went to attack his brother and ended up killing him. God even tries to intervene before this happened. It says uh, in verse 7 in Genesis 3, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's desire to have you, but you must rule over it. And so Cain takes that advice, that gentle like nudging from God, and he just shoves it to the side, and he sins. And because of Cain's sin, Abel is ultimately affected. And we see this all over the Bible. People acting in selfishness and in sin, and other people are affected. Meaning, the reality, and I remind students this all the time, your sin creates a ripple effect. Sin is never your own. You know, like when I talk to students about addiction to drugs or pornographies or toxic relationships, whatever it might be, the, the idea here is, well, it's like, well, it's not hurting anybody else. It's like, that's where you're wrong. First of all, it hurts God, but second, it is creating this ripple effect to your family, to your friends, to your community that you and your pride and your arrogance just do not see. But your sin is never your own. So if you're taking out your anger, your jealousy, that affects deep into your community. So it's your sin, it's somebody else's sin, but then we have sin of the world. Genesis 3.17 says this, and he said to the man, uh, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it, the ground is cursed because of you. Like all creation itself is now cursed. And he says you will eat from it by, by means of painful labor all the days of your life. There is this sin of the world where we recognize the world is broken. The world is no longer as it should be. It's almost two years to the date that I moved to Hot Springs out of Phoenix. And when we moved, uh, we needed to bring two cats with us. And um, I don't know if you've ever taken a 20-hour road trip with a cat, uh, but it does not go well. I'm just going to throw that out there. So we brought the cats in. We had two cats, Gandalf the Gray, uh, who's a gray cat, 
And then we had Sandy. Sandy was uh, kind of like a calico. She had orange and white. Uh, and Sandy was one of our rescue cats. Now, a little bit of context here. When we were living in Phoenix, uh, the house that we got, we realized very quickly, had a feral, wild cat problem where we just saw tons and tons of cats. And then we realized our neighbors uh, were, one, hoarders, and two, were putting out tons of food in their backyard to feed all of the cats. So over the years, you would have a mama and a dad, a cat, and then they keep making more cats and more cats and more cats because there's food and because there's a ton of junk, they had the perfect environment to just have tons of cats. To give you an idea, in just a couple years, we uh, caught, released, and adopted out 50-plus cats. Those are the ones we caught. And so Sandy was one of those cats. My daughter Joy was like, I just have to have this one kitten. She's so adorable. I said, of course. And so Sandy came with us to Hot Springs. And about a month or two after, Sandy started acting wildly different. Went from a sweet, cuddly cat that my daughter loved to like, what is this cat going to do now? For instance, we would go outside and hear it screaming and it would be up in the tree. And so we would get the ladder, go up to the tree. We'd get the gloves on. We'd get the cat down. We'd put the cat down and the cat would run up the tree. He goes, meow, meow, meow. Like, what? like we just saved you. We'd get the ladder back out, put it in, grab the cat down and just run back up the tree. We're like, okay, something's, something's wrong. We would go to feed the cat. We'd put the foot out and the, the, the cat would actually like attack you. Now, I know what you're thinking. This just sounds like normal cat behavior. Granted, but this was a little bit more extreme. There was even a point where uh, Joy, because this was her cat, went to feed her, and this cat went viciously at my daughter. And at this point, I said, you know what? We're done. We cannot deal with this cat anymore because now it's a danger. I don't know if it's going to try to attack me at any moment. It is just this crazy cat now. And so we did what uh, my family calls the cat got the blue juice to go over the rainbow. So we call it. So we take the cat in, and I'm talking, we're talking to the veterinarian about like what, like this cat was so sweet, what happened? And the vet went right in and was like, was this a cat that kind of came out of an inbreeding situation? Like lots of other, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, okay, well, he goes, this isn't an issue about you moving, this is actually a, ge a genetic problem. Because as the bloodline of the cat deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated, even though it was fine now, eventually just got to a point in its maturity where it just went and just went crazy because the bloodline went bad. Here's the deal. Adam and Eve sin. And as mankind and nature grows and sin is in the world, disease enters into the picture. Like the, the, the purity that was once in our genetics and the purity that was in creation itself is no longer there. And so sin is not just, again, a personal issue. It is a cosmic issue against a creator. Look at Romans eight nineteen through 22. I didn't put this out there, but for creation waits and eager, eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, that even the world itself, the ground itself, recognizes that it is under this curse, things are not as it should be. Creation itself is longing for the day where it can once again be restored. So we have the sin that we sin, somebody else sin, the sin of the world that we recognize, but the, the fourth one is the one that we struggle with probably the most. So we don't know why. 
trauma, circumstances, hurt, heartache can enter into our lives, and there is essentially no explanation aside from one. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. That we may not know why certain thoughts Certain things are happening in our lives, but we do know that God is still with us as we walk through those things in our lives. It's not the way we would have done it, but we can rest assured that God is still in the situation. So we don't know why, but Jesus, he actually introduces a fifth understanding. So look again at John 9, verses 3 through 5. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about, his blindness came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus introduces this fifth understanding that, yes, we can understand it's if you sin or somebody else sins and the world is broken, but beyond that, it is for my glory. That it is for his glory that certain things exist in our lives. He calls himself the light of the world. He's like, it's my glory that's ultimately going to shine in this situation because I am the only person who can do that. See, the Christian worldview provides the best understanding for the issue of suffering. Like, you have to understand every worldview. When I have somebody uh, come and they, they think it's a very intellectual question of, well, if God's so great and God's so good, then uh, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's like, well, that, that's a question in every single worldview. Whether you're an atheist, agnostic, or believer, it doesn't matter. Bad things are going to continue to happen. And I think Christianity provides the best understanding of it, of not only why does it happen, but it goes deeper than that and gives purpose. And like other faith-based or no faith where there is no meaning. What I love is that Jesus says, no, 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 no. This trial is happening. This, this blindness is happening in his life because it's ultimately going to display my glory. And the rest of the chapter illustrates that point. As if John, who's writing this, says, okay, Jesus just said that this is for his glory. Now watch his glory unfold. So let's, let's continue. John 6, John 9, 6 through 12. So after he said these things, he spit on the ground and he made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. And go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't isn't this the one who used to sit begging? And some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. The man himself, he kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it over my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed. I received my sight. Well, where is he? And he's like, I don't know. I've literally never seen him. Like, I, I don't know. Second point is this. We ultimately know we can put our hope in Christ, but the second is Jesus receives glory when our hope is in him. When our hope is completely fixated in on him. There's a couple of interesting things about this passage. One, the reason why this is a big deal is because this has not happened before. No other person has been blind since birth and has been healed. There are multiple instances in the Bible where you see people who are blind, they are blind far after birth, 
and Jesus are a prophet, somebody restores their sight, but this has literally never happened in the course of human history. And so the other thing that's really interesting is we don't know this guy's name. Like in a lot of the stories where we talk about Jesus interacting with somebody, you get the name of the person that he interacted with. Well, in this case, you don't. And I actually believe there's a strong reason why we don't know this guy's name. It's because later in this same chapter, we learn that the Pharisees were persecuting those that were saying they were Jesus' disciples. So I think as a protection, they didn't name this young man and they didn't name his parents because they didn't want religious persecution to torment them. The other thing that's really neat is Jesus actually never explicitly promises healing when you look at this passage. He does ask for obedience, but he doesn't ask for healing. He actually just tells them, he's like, listen, go to this particular pool, wash, because you're, you're dirty. And so he gave simple commands, and the rest was really left to the blind man. And the other thing that's always interesting is the method in which Jesus did this, right? Because we don't see Jesus healing in this particular way in any other instance where he actually spits, forms clay, and, and just rubs it on the eye. And if you're envisioning that, then it's not pleasant, right? Like no one likes to get spit in the face, and Jesus is not only spitting, but he's making mud and just taking it on this person's eyes. So why? Why would Jesus go about doing it this particular way? I think there's two main reasons. One, it's a picture of the, uh, of the incarnation. It's a picture of creation itself. God made the first man out of the dust. So I think this imagery brings us all the way back to Genesis 2, where man is created. And so, so it's the creative nature and the supremacy of Christ and his ability to heal. Like, note, I, I think there's this little kind of aside, this emphasis on the meaning of Siloam which means sent. And so if you don't know this, and I think the, the reason why this is included is because the Jewish people of that day would have known this, whereas today we kind of miss out. There's actually a messianic prophecy in Isaiah related to the, to the waters of Siloam. And so the people during that time rejected the, the water God had provided. And so now will they reject the living water that was sent, that is provided. We can directly relate that to John 9, where it says, the works of him who sent me. So Jesus gives this little illustration of his own coming to earth, sent by the Father, and are people either going to receive it or are they going to reject it? So you have this, this, this picture of the incarnation and Jesus' mission. But the other thing is I think it's just a picture of simple obedience. Uh, years ago, I noticed that like, my vision got blurry, I didn't, actually, I didn't notice. I was driving with a student, and I was like, I literally could not read a sign. And I'm like, can you read that? And they're like, yeah, Josh, everyone could read that. I'm like, I can't read that. Is that a problem? Like, you might need glasses. So I went and got glasses. Uh, but the problem is, is that I lost glasses, I don't know, once a week. And so after a while, I was like, I can't afford that. So switch to contacts. Now, how many of you are wear, wear contacts here today? Just contact wearers? Okay, good. Maybe, maybe you can uh, understand this, but contacts are great until they're not, right? Like you rub your eyes the wrong way and then that contact's like, well, I'm just gonna go over here now. And then the rest of the, the morning, you're just blinking furiously and it just like aches and there's a sharp pain or, or something. And you're doing everything in your power to just rid yourself of this small irritation. Like the contact is a small thing, but it is irritating the goodness out of you. I love it in particular when I'm talking to someone and my contact goes wonky, and then all they get is just me like, 
Josh, are you okay? I'm great. Just doing good. Like, it, it's clearly ir irritating me, so I do whatever I can in that moment to fix the irritation. This is exactly what the blind man had to walk through, because even though he's blind, there is still, like, the weight of the clay on his eyes. There's still the nastiness that he knows of the saliva that's there. It had to irritate him. There's the humiliation as he was walking through the town, and people could see the mud and the clay on his face. But he knew what he had to do. Like he knew the only thing I can do is to go and to wash. And this man named Jesus told me to go and do this. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it seems like something is going to happen. And because he is just hopeless, he obeys. Because here's the thing, why would he do this? Why not in that moment just go to the closest pool and, and just wash off the irritation? Why not in that moment just, just get it out of your eyes? See, John almost downplays the miracle. But this man had no concept of light. He had no concept of what things looked like. He never knew the faces of his parents. His parents probably went to every doctor, every priest, tried to find every solution to find a cure and found none. This man probably himself tried anything he could to restore his sight, just looking and waiting for a miracle. That's why he would allow such a thing, because he's just, I'll try anything. I'll try anything to see, to just know. See, whenever I face a trial, and maybe you're like me, I tend to view it legalistically. Like something occurs in my life. I say, God, we just, why? Why? Why is this happening to me? God, haven't you seen all that I've done? God, haven't I been good? God, haven't I been praying? Am I not doing enough devotion it's a very legalistic mindset. But then the next time I, I go is I, I try to fix the mistake as quickly as possible, not even involving God. Just how do, I, how do I make this go away so quickly so I don't have to deal with the trial anymore? And what we're doing is we're missing the fact that God has a bigger picture in mind for my suffering. To shortcut the trial would be miss out on the display of God's glory in the trial. I mean, he says this in 1 Peter 5.10. It says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself strengthen you. See, only someone who realized he was blind would long for sight in this way. Only the one who understands his condition will allow Jesus to fill his eyes with literal mud and then go through town looking ridiculous in hopes of healing only when a person understands his or her spiritual blindness will he turn to Jesus for healing. Instead of residing in pride, you start looking to the person of Christ. And when we do that, the, the result is what we see here in the life of the blind man, is there is noticeable change. Like you cannot, and Pastor Phil has uh, articulated this as well, you cannot encounter Christ and remain the same. To encounter Christ is to change. Like, this had to be a comical scene. Like, I, I hope we all understand this, right? Like, he has never seen anything before. And you can imagine, like, he's washing his face, he's done washing, opens his eyes, and then suddenly, bam, there, there's the concept of light and dark. There's the concept of color. There's the concept of depth. Right? He's looking at people, he's like, wow, you are way more ugly than I thought you would be. 
Like, he, he doesn't know. And so he's going around town freaking out, and it's causing everybody to look and be like, wait a minute, wasn't he blind? How does he know I'm ugly? Now I have questions. It created this noticeable difference. The people around him clearly saw the difference, even though they, it would not have been great, but it was visible. There's change about him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Like, when we encounter Christ, things change. Look at this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. Therefore, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me get this straight. If I put my life into Christ, that means now I am a new creation, not an old one. But what does that mean? The beauty of the gospel is he doesn't just leave us as a new creation. He actually does something more. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, it talks about how we are his workmanship. In some translations, it says we are his masterpiece. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, so if I give my life to Christ, I am now this new creation that God is working on. But what is that work going to look like? It's Romans 8, 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the very image of his son. All right, so I've given my life to Christ. I'm now a new creation. He's molding me into the image of his son, Jesus. Now, clearly that doesn't mean his outward appearance. That must mean his character. Well, what is the character of Jesus? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such, there is no law. I always say there's one fruit, many flavors, meaning we can't just ignore one. We are to see them all. So today, as God is walking me through this trial, I ask, well, then how is he growing me in this trial? What, what fruit of the Spirit, what flavor of the fruit of the Spirit Is he bringing about in my life? Is he working on my joy? Is he working on my patience? How about my peace? There's a lot of anxiety and depression. Is he he working on my peace? How is he bringing about this? Because here's here's the great news. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. I don't have to be perfect, but I do know one day that I'll be made fully perfect as I stand with Jesus. So when we follow Christ, we, there is visible, discernible difference in our lives. And now we're going to see that played out in the life of the blind man. So follow along with me. It's a big chunk of text because it's a big story. John 9, 13 through 34. So he answered, uh, the man called Jesus. So this is verse 13. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. And the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was the Sabbath. The Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. So they're asking the blind man. He says, well, he put mud on my eyes. He told him, I I washed and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, probably Nicodemus, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And, And there was a division amongst the Pharisees. So again, they asked the blind man, what, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And they said, well, the blind man says he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the man born blind. And they asked him, verse 19, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Verse 20, we, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Just ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
Verse 22, his parents had said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why the parents said, uh, he is of age, ask him, and probably why we don't get their names. So second time, they bring in the man again. They summon the man who had been born blind and told him, give, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're, they're basically saying, just tell the truth. Just, just admit before everybody that he is a sinner. And he answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. And they asked him again, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the blind man says, I already told you. And you didn't listen. What, would, you, would you like to hear it again? You didn't want to become his disciples too, did you? And they ridiculed him. You are this man's disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. So this is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is fearing God and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard or opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. You were born entirely into sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out. The next large point is this. Jesus receives glory when we share about what he has done. So first, he receives glory when we put our hope, put our faith into him. And just stop there. He receives glory when we tell about what he has done, why we have hope. See, here's the thing. When God works in your life, and the Pharisees prove this, people will often try to discredit it. Remember when I was uh, newly saved, I was 13 years old, about to be 14, and after I gave my life to Christ, ridiculed by my friends, and told like, ah, oh, it's a phase. Like, you know, after a while, you'll come back and start doing the stuff that you were doing before. They try to discredit it. I mean, even recently, with an outbreak in revivals across college campuses, while others rejoice that the Spirit is moving amongst young students, others worked to discredit it because it did not follow their theological standpoint. Right? Like People work tirelessly to try to discredit the work in the miracle of God. You see this with the Pharisees. They had basically three inter interrogations. One was just outright denial of what had happened. They bring in the blind man. Right from the start, the Pharisees have determined Jesus is guilty. Because of their regulations about Sabbath, they couldn't acknowledge him as God. So now they're put between a rock and a hard place. What do we do? And so then they try to disprove the miracle. Well, clearly this man is just a fraud. This is a scam. He wasn't actually blind, nor was he born blind. So let's bring in his parents. And if we could disprove the story, then we can discredit Jesus. But ultimately, the parents are like, no, he was born blind, and we have no idea how he received sight. So you're going to have to go back to him. And the last thing that we tend to do or people tend to do is just cling to their pride. The religious leaders were stuck. They can't dispute the miracle, but they can't acknowledge that Jesus is from God. If they do, that would mean Jesus' diagnosis of their spiritual hypocrisy is true. See, church, we have to understand when we acknowledge Jesus for who he is, that immediately shines a light upon who we are. And so our pride and our sin is revealed. And so we either have to admit that there's sin or we, in our pride, say, no, 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 I, I am without it. I don't need Christ in this scenario. 
And sin always causes confusion and it breeds spiritual ignorance because we're just stacking layer upon layer of pride and self-deception. And Jesus breaks through all of that. So what do we do when someone's coming at us trying to disprove or discredit the work of God in our lives? What do we do? Well, we, we stick with our story. We just stick with our story. All this man knew was that he was blind and now he could see. That was it. That, that is all he knew. And no threat could take that away. There could be no explanation that would remove that. To the blind man, it was simple logic. He did nothing to earn this. He did nothing really to do anything. And nothing on earth could change his blindness. It had to be a work of God. So therefore, Jesus had to be a man of God because otherwise this would not be possible. So I wanted to do, I don't see her. Is Taylor Mace here? There she is. Taylor Mace, come on up. I wanted to have a student just share a testimony because a testimony is one of our most powerful, most effective tools of this is just how Jesus has worked in my life. You don't have to build a strong defense. You just have to communicate here is what God has done. So I asked Taylor to share her. She's one of our awesome students here at Crossgate Student Ministries. So go ahead, Taylor. When I was little, around seven or eight, Gavin, my brother, got saved in his room with my dad. Being saved means you're saved from your sins and that you have a place in heaven. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Romans 10, 9. 9-10. Back then, I didn't realize being saved was so much more than looking cool, but now I realize it's so much more. When you get saved, you join a family of God, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to leave it. If you have God in your heart, then you're already saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2-8. So I begged to get saved, and I remember how cool I felt, but that was it. I said the prayer and was considered saved just like other people, but nothing else. But it was just a head knowledge, not heart. So the years went on. I did what I did. And then sixth or seventh grade, I went to Camp Renew. And the first kind of, at first, I was just kind of going through the motions. On the second to last day, there was a sermon that stuck out to me, though. It was about a person who says they're Christian, but they turn around and don't live their lives like they're a Christian. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7. That really got to me, and I started feeling so much conviction that I just started bawling. And whenever they called for us to get up, I didn't even hesitate. I didn't think about what my friends thought. I just got up. I found an adult, and they prayed with me. And I asked if it's okay to get saved, even though I already had said the prayer when I was younger. And my prayer partner said, yes, if you don't feel it was real the other time, then you can. And I knew that this did not feel like the last time. This time, I felt so much relief and so much joy washed over me that I just knew it was true. I knew that this was going to leave me into the life that I actually needed to be living. I have come a long way since then. I struggled getting into the Word for a while, but I finally have a good relationship with God. I'm in the Word almost every day, and I've discovered callings to missions and ministry. I finally realized that I can't keep the gospel to myself because there's so many people that need to hear the gospel. Um, my favorite quote that I've realized, um, we went to Denal, which was a bunch of churches that came together, and we did a bunch of fellowship. But my favorite quote was, who are you to withhold yourself from the creator of the universe? And it's, that's just such a convincing um, sentence to me. 
I truly feel closer to God more than ever before. There are always going to be ups and downs because, don't get me wrong, I struggle. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But because it's so hard, it makes your relationship that much more meaningful. Thank you, Taylor. Our testimonies are powerful tools. It's a a testimony, literally, of what here is what God has done in my life and what he continues to do to this day. And, And nobody can take that from you. Nobody can remove that from you, no matter how powerfully they try. This is what we see. Okay, now follow along with me in John 9, 35 through 34, our conclusion of the story. So Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. He found him. Jesus found him and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. He said, I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. So some of the Pharisees were with him, heard him say these things, and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? To which Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Our last point is this. Jesus receives glory when we put our our faith and our trust in him. In both cases, Jesus seeks out this man. Often reminds me of uh, Matthew 18, where we know leaving the 99 for the one. In John 9, where he talks about this, this condemnation or this judgment, it doesn't contradict what we've seen early in Scripture, like in John 3. The reason for Christ's coming was salvation. But the result of his coming was condemnation for those who would not believe. Meaning like the same sun that brings life and reveals the beauty of the flower is the same sun that reveals the vermin underneath the rock. The religious leaders were blind and would not admit it, therefore the light of truth only made them more blind. The beggar admitted his need. He knew who he needed to worship. And he received both physical sight in the beginning of the story, but now, here at the end of John 9, he has something infinitely more valuable, which is his spiritual sight, where he now knows who Jesus is. And there's the key question, do you believe in the Son of Man? It is the question, no matter who you are, no matter what position you find yourself in this room today, it is the question you must answer. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Son of Man? I mean, look at the contrast in the story here. Jesus has this paradoxical reply. If you were blind, you'd be better off, but you claim to see, therefore you're guilty. Blindness would at least be an excuse for not knowing what is going on, but the Pharisees did know what was going on. Jesus had performed many miracles, and the religious leaders ignored the evidence. See, for for some of you, you know what's going on in your heart and in your head. What I'm asking today is, are you willing to acknowledge that? If you're in a place saying, yeah, I got this head knowledge, I've been in church, I've been going to all the things all my life, But if I were to answer the question, do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Do I believe in the Son of Man? I don't don't know where I end up on that question. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it in one of his sermons. 
He said, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ. It is our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Will you today admit your sin? See your brokenness. Realize you can't do anything about it. Just like the blind man, he knew, I can't do anything to restore my sight. Will you seek salvation and healing from the only person who can truly offer it? This is, I love Taylor's testimony because it reminds me of the progression we see in the story of the blind man, right? At first, he just understands that there is this man called Jesus. That's all he knows. But then as Jesus works in his life, he, he starts to see, well, clearly he must be a prophet. He must be someone who speaks about God. But then he realizes the miracle is so much more deeper. He's like, well, he clearly must be a man of God. No one can do the things that he is doing unless they are of God. But then here in John 9, he realizes, no, 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 it's much deeper. He is God. Question for everyone here is, where are you? Do you believe in just a man called Jesus? Do you just see him as a prophet, as a good teacher? Do you think he just did some good works? Or do you know him for who he truly is? Son of God. See, when we faithfully follow Christ, we can see his glory even in difficult circumstances because we know who he is. And then it comes back to the reality of Romans 8.28 is true. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose and his purpose to bring us closer to his son, Jesus. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.